This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Oh, Jan. Murder. Murder. Murder most foul. Murder, murder, murder. We've got murders galore this morning. I've only got one. You've got more than that. Oh, about seven or so. But Well, actually, you could double that into 14 because they're sort of retribution crimes Ooh. that I've got on my plate. So I better start wading through all of these corpses. There's no such thing as equitable justice when it comes to domestic violence, but several women in Catherine Kovacic's latest novel, Seven Sisters, think they have found a way. So, Catherine, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much, Dave. Now, let's begin with the numbers, which underpins this whole story in terms of domestic violence per week and the ratio of convictions and things like this. Well, in Australia, on average, one woman every week is killed by a current or former partner. And so that's that's murdered, not, you know, hospitalised or injured, which is an enormous number. But also then, later in the novel, we find you mention the conviction. So often men uh, get away with manslaughter. There's an excuse. They've got a good lawyer. And we've seen lots of those cases. But if a woman takes action to get out of a situation of domestic violence through murder, she's more likely to be convicted. There's a very high rate of convictions. In fact, um, more women are likely to be found guilty of murder rather than manslaughter or acquitted entirely when they defend themselves in a domestic violence situation and that abusive partner is killed. Well, we'll be going into some of the justifications for murder later on, but let's get into this story. We have Mia DeVries, a therapist who has brought six women together for group counselling. Lovely idea. Because each of these six women have lost a sister to domestic violence. But there's more to it. Well, yes. Um, In this case, each of the perpetrators has effectively gotten away with it, uh, either completely scot-free or a sentence that has been pled down to be insultingly negligible. And um, so these women are not only grieving, they're, they're rather angry. And uh, Mia is a rather unconventional therapist, shall we say. And uh, so she and the women come up with a plan to uh, redress the balance by, well, taking out the original perpetrators. It's probably the best way to put it. And you've uh, one inspiration here is Alfred Hitchcock, uh, uh, murder on a, um, strangers on a train. Yes, well, Hitchcock and obviously Patricia Highsmith, the original author, yes, the idea that, that by switching murders, the, uh, the woman who is directly connected to the case, whose sister was killed by that man, will be somewhere far away with a wonderfully airtight alibi and the woman who carries out the... We'll call it a hit, shall we? The woman who carries out the hit has absolutely nothing to do with the victim at all. So a, a lovely way to get away with murder. And the name of this therapy group? The Pleiades, yes. So the uh, the star cluster, um, which is named for seven sisters who uh, were... Well, they were trying to avoid the, to put it delicately, unwanted attentions of the giant Orion, the hunter, and to keep them safe, put that in inverted commas, Zeus turned them into stars, so their lives were taken away to keep them safe. And then, of course, uh, the giant Orion was turned into a constellation too and so continues to hunt them across the sky for all eternity. But also then, this notion of women needing protection in society. I mean, these were the daughters of Atlas while he was holding up the rest of the world. His daughters needed protection. So that that 
trope within society is just endless. Absolutely, yeah. So anyway, um, now, of course, there's that irony with Mia being a therapist uh, advocating murder. Um, I mean, I guess if you have the right therapist, you can get away with anything. The number of people who'd said they'd like to join this therapy group, David, you would not believe. <laughs> but really, I mean, it's it's therapy. Ideally, you know, people having suffered the same thing, coming together uh, for counselling, etc. But now finding an active direction as well. And as these murders take place, uh, it's Mia basically justifying it for the women, counselling the women, allowing them to overcome any qualms they may have. Very much so. Well, these are, at the end of the day, these are normal women. You know, they're not, not trained assassins or anything like that. So it, it's still a big thing to go out and kill someone. Now, you go through, the well, the first section of the novel in many ways is a series of justifications, psychological justifications. Every woman here believes that those men deserve to die. So there's an obvious justification. Um, would you care to scroll through some of the others that are here? Well, now, let's see. How can we justify murder? Well, it's not its not murder. Is, is it murder or is it homicide? We could break it down into, into that sort of very basic thing, you know. Um, Levels of murder. That's right. Would she have killed Rowan to save her sister? Absolutely. So, in other words, stepping into prevent a crime and committing murder. So there's a justification. So why not? In the aftermath. Absolutely. And and then there is the question also for these women of, as we all know, people who perpetuate domestic violence don't just do it once. So even if one woman manages to escape an abusive relationship, that person is going to commit violence against the next one. So are you saving the next person and the next one? So it's a quite an honourable thing to do Very to prevent so. a crime. Deadline. I like what you've gone into here, a line drawn around a prison. Any man who put toe outside the deadline was shot. So you've gone into the actual derivation uh, of the word. Isn't that a lovely derivation too? <laughs> we talk about deadlines all the time without really thinking about that. <laughs> so there's, you know, but also then these practices were in place. If you go over a certain line, that's it. Um, evil people win when good people stand back. Another justification for murder there. And biblical justification? Well, yes, that's, you know, if you kill someone, it's it's the old eye for an eye, isn't it? Tooth for a tooth. Yeah. And, and later on, you go into Ecclesiastes as well, <laughs> something I wasn't familiar with in terms of people working together. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all there. It's in the Bible, David. <laughs> <laughs> what more justification could you want? But of course, this biblical or religious background actually influences one of the women. She has second thoughts. Yeah. So one of the characters is uh, she's quite religious, and and that's that's her big struggle is where does this fit in with her religion? Can she justify it even though her sister was murdered, even though she's in that situation? But it raises the question of whether society has conditioned us to accept these murders. Could we be conditioned to seek retribution, uh, which could be equally justifiable? I think that's a very good point. And I think you're right that we, we are conditioned to perhaps not look too closely at domestic violence. The murders begin... And it's actually 
quite a simple affair. <laughs> really. I mean, they're, they're playing on the flaws, both physical and psychological. Very, very much so, yes. So they're, they're playing on weaknesses of their targets. But also, at the end of the day, these are normal women, and I'm not putting that in inverted commas, they are normal women but with normal skill sets. So no one has a black belt in karate or, you know, spent 10 years as a, as a sniper in special ops. So there's no scenes where they're going to suddenly disarm a man, take his gun, hotwire a boat, go full throttle across Sydney Harbour while shooting out the back, you know, at their pursuers. That's not going to happen here. But, it, but it's also delightfully simple in, in, in some ways how easy it is to, well, commit the crime in the first place and then get away with it. Isn't that interesting, David? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So many ways to kill a person. Well, if, if I might digress to this morning's <laughs> newspaper and um, someone has just been, a, a woman has just been convicted of murder, Tamazapan in the icing of biscuits... So she fed that to her abusive partner and then stuffed him in a freezer. Yeah, I mean, the freezer probably was a little bit of overkill because, you know, when you've got a nice round of tamazepam... I... Well, the, the tamazepam put him to sleep. It's a bit like when you cook lobster. Mm. Um, not that I've ever had uh, could afford that, but one way of killing the lobster beforehand is to freeze it. Nice, easy, painless death. Well, that's true. I mean, theoretically, you could kill someone with a nice dose of tamazepam and leave it there. And maybe she thought she had. Maybe she was into sort of, you know, body hiding and disposal mode at that point. But, um, you know, it must have been a nice chest freezer. That's all I can say. Now, this is sort of uh, now leading us to your state of mind, Catherine. <laughs> because how on earth did you think of all of these scenarios? You know, it was surprisingly easy, David, which is perhaps a little bit scary. But, you know, I've kind of got, I've got a back catalogue, actually, of, of things that I didn't get to put in the book. But um, my, my biggest thing was working out, you know, the ones that, that would work cleanly, shall we say, and, and allow the people to get away without leaving too much in the way of forensics. And also we're trying to make things look like accidents or suicides, so we're not going to tip off the cops too much. I didn't, sadly get to use the method which I found in one of the, the medical journals of, you know, trauma injury and something, which was about fatalities due to falling coconuts, which I thought was just a cartoon thing, but apparently it's a real yeah, thing. It, it can happen. It, it can happen. But I'd like to see. <laughs> we'll see if that makes the next novel. But OK, now we start getting into several twists that uh, turn up. Detective Senior Sergeant Fiona Ulbrich, uh, sort of her pet name or her, her um, F.U. Uh, is what her friends call her, but she's been investigating domestic violence murders. Yeah, so she's, um, she's a very straight down the line cop, but she's also a very frustrated cop because she's been on the end of what we'd call a perfect, perfect investigation on her point of view in investigating a domestic violence murder, and yet the perpetrator gets away with it or gets the short sentence. And so she's frustrated and she is keeping tabs on those men that she believes will commit the same crime again. And what does she notice? She notices a bit of a pattern. The names that she has been looking for and expecting to see in domestic violence cases, well, these men are turning up dead. But then, according to the numbers, these coincidences can be explained away. Well, that's right. Statistically, you know, there's so much domestic violence that you're got to expect that some of those perpetrators are, are going to die from accidents and natural causes. And they are, in fact, um, violent people, 
themselves, so it's logical that they would meet with violent ends. Well, absolutely. And such like. So um, we've had, we, in terms of the murders, opportunistic murders. There was one opportunistic murder there. Um, the vanity of the individuals in question, drugs. All of the pieces are there in society anyway uh, for these murders to happen. But then... Detain oh, put my teeth in, try that again. Detective Senior Sergeant Fiona Albrick. Uh, could we consider her to be a victim in many ways of domestic violence or any uh, policeman investigating, uh, given that they're faced with so much of this, which cannot necessarily be equitably addressed? Absolutely. I think domestic violence takes a, a huge toll on police that investigate it, and Fiona Albrick is one of those police officers. She's... um. You know, she's struggling with and seeing those people get away with it again and again and being in those situations where, you know, you're called out to a house a number of times and then the next time it's 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 turned into murder. Mm. You know, so we see these murders in slow motion and she feels very powerless to make real change in that regard. So she is a victim too. And also then there's an interesting twist with Mia DeVries as well, which I think we're going to have to allow the reader to find out for themselves. I think we're nearly out of time. We're nearly out of time. (laughs) We can just murder my co-host and we can continue. (laughs) What what sort of accidents could happen in a radio studio? Anyway, we must uh, go to our next author, but the novel is Seven Sisters, Lots of Murder. The author is Catherine Kovacic and it is is a, oh, it's not on this uh, copy, it's a HarperCollins release. Thank you, Catherine. (laughs) Pleasure, David. Well, I'm going to move out of murder scenes into a primary school. Primary school kids would love Lenny Marks as their teacher. She's incredibly organised and never absent. So the title of this book doesn't seem to fit her character. Lenny Marks gets away with murder, or does she? Welcome, debut author Karen May. Thank you, Jan. Thank you so much for having me. Lenny is 37 years old, and it's not only her job as a teacher that she's very organised with. What other routines does she have? Pretty much everything in Lenny's life is as structured as she could possibly make it. So she doesn't like the school holidays. She doesn't uh, thrive in that time. She likes to know she's doing her groceries twice a week. She knows what she's cooking every night of the week, if you could call it cooking, um, more reheating food. Uh, And pretty much everything in her life runs on a really strict routine uh, and that's how she keeps herself running pretty even. It's the two times to the grocery shop where she meets Ned and he's a good friend. But it is, as you say, say, she feels at a loss when she doesn't have the school bell and that order in her life. Her home is her favourite place where she would double lock her door and check it at least eight times more before she went to bed. How does she calm herself when she feels under stress? So Lenny's favourite thing to do, or maybe not her favourite thing to do, but her go-to is to rearrange words in her head. So anagrams, or if you can imagine those little nine-letter Um, puzzles in the paper and so she just runs a word through her head and she thinks of all the different words that she could make out of it and quite often uh, for readers there might be a little clue in there as to her state of mind. Well for an example routine it's turned into inert ruin rut nightmares streaming 
Wrighton's nastier, shaming, garish remain. And these are right through the book and they're very, very clever. Well, uh, Lenny, 37, but her foster mum, Faye, has told her she has to make some friends. So she chooses two prep teachers on the staff. Do they want to be friends with her? I don't think that the two prep teachers really have any time in their life for anybody else that doesn't um, serve their purposes. Uh, And I have since apologised to my daughter started um, prep this year and I've apologised to her prep teacher who is one of the most amazing people um, and said it's actually not based on anybody I'd met it was just um, the characters I needed to have in there but no uh, Lenny's looking in the wrong places to um, achieve her goals which her foster mum Faye and in a very nice way has told her it's time to get a life. Lenny's a very private person she doesn't give her home address even on official paperwork so a letter arrives for her at the school and it's addressed to Helena Winters not Lenny Marks, she's reluctant to open it because she, what's inside? She knows, she knows. It's from the uh, Adult Parole Board in Victoria. Uh, She guesses before opening it that it's to do with her stepfather, Fergus, uh, however can't really put her finger on why, Um, but something's burning at the back of her mind and things start to um, trigger in her and it sets off a bit of a chain of events. This is a quote. When Fergus called her Helena, he'd managed to make it sound like darts being thrown. And she's got anagrams for him. Slavering, gainless, argues evil. So his last words to her were, you did this. Sparking memories that she'd prefer to forget. And we get the backstory bit by bit. So how old was she? Fergus came into her life when she was six and married her mother and then he was in her life till she was almost 12. She remembers that time well. I think most people have some memories in there, especially I guess if something bad's happened in that period of time. Uh, Quite a formative time, I guess, and especially you look up to your parents so much during that time and she considered Fergus her dad because she didn't know her dad. Prep teacher Amy wants some staff to come to a trivia night at the pub to meet her boyfriend. Well, Lenny doesn't pick up on the sarcasm that she's not really invited. So to compensate for uh, her nerves, there's quite a bit of wine drunk. Helps everyone's nerves, I think, doesn't it? (laughs) And she meets Amy's boyfriend. Who was that? So she gets a bit of a shock and finds out that Ned, her friend at the supermarket, who she always gets a bit of a weird feeling about that she can't quite put her finger on, um, but Ned is Amy's boyfriend, much to her. Yeah, it's it's a shock. (laughs) Crestfallen. Yes. That's the word. Good word. And re anagrammed cleanser reflects Kareen Falters Festus secret. So she's had a few wines, and on the way home, she hears a yelping dog. And we're going to hear Karen Mayne read. I won't do this nearly as well as Annie Maynard did in audiobook, but I'll give it a go. She forced herself to step back to the fence and see what was happening. Holding her breath, she pushed her eye back to the gap between the pickets and caught sight of the man's boot colliding with the wall of the kennel. It shook so violently Lenny was surprised it didn't fall apart. Just shut up, the man roared. 
The dog scurried from its confines. She watched as it raced towards the fence, which was also directly at her, only to be thrown backwards as if hitting an invisible force field. It was then she noticed the chain attached to its neck, tethering it to the garage wall, keeping it prisoner and within reach of the baseball-capped man with his angry voice and heavy boots. He staggered towards the rotwheeler and let fly again with his left foot, this time directly at the poor creature with deliberate force. Lenny was sure a yelp slipped from her lips and she clamped her hand down over her mouth to stop any other cowardly noises from giving her away. She closed her eyes and hoped it would end soon, imagining herself in the warmth of her house. Her mind deposited her inside the base of her wardrobe where she could close the door and feel safe and hidden. When Fergus was angry and storming around the house or yelling at her mum, she would go there. Or if Lenny was lonely or just wanted time alone, she would tuck herself in that small space beneath her clothes and beside her shoes and find comfort there. She hadn't thought of that hiding place for years and years. How was it that the first mention of Fergus had her reverting to her childhood self? Another anagram. Scared. Raced. Seer. Red. Ark. Scar. Mm. Well, she does take the dog home and she calls it Malcolm. Now, I thought this was a play on words, warm welcome, but learned that there is something more to it. Ned suggests walking their dogs together. And Lenny certainly overthinks this as a quote. Her social ineptitude never failed to disappoint her, no matter how old she got. And even the dog's happy relationship with Lenny. She thinks that the dog may have a canine form of Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) That's good. And what of her housemate, Monica? Lenny is a diehard fan of Friends, the TV show, which as I've had this book released for a few weeks now, the amount of Friends fans, like I knew people were fans, but the amount of proper love Friends and we'll rewatch it for all time, fans have come out of the woodwork. But Monica is... The friend's character, Monica, who does not live with Lenny at all, nor does Lenny really think she does, but she sees her every night because she puts on the TV to keep herself company. She sits there and she plays her game of Scrabble with her two tile racks and one of them is set up for Monica, being the most competitive of the friend's crew, of course, and that's how she sort of gets through her evenings playing Scrabble with her friend Monica. Well, Lenny is under stress and, uh, quote, the parent-teacher interviews were enough to send her looking for a career change. The eye contact, the questions, the need to be tactful yet honest were gruelling. And a bit more stress, who's one of her parents? So it turns out that one of the parents, and she didn't realise, is a old acquaintance, I won't say an old school friend, an old acquaintance from high school. She's really shaken and a friend on staff, Kira, takes her aside and says, you know, what's the matter? And he was a bully. Kira calls him a dickhead, chided, hacked, aided, ached, idea, hide. And she also slips something else to Kira. So this is just after she's had the run-in with Kurt, the acquaintance. It's my birthday today, Lenny said, not realising she was going to share this information before it was out of her mouth. Kira almost jumped to her feet. Why didn't you say? I've never celebrated it. It's in the same week my mum, Lenny hesitated, the same week I went to live with my grandmother. She rubbed her thigh, hoping the pressure would stop the throbbing of her scar. It didn't. Two days before her 11th birthday, her mum and Fergus had abandoned her forever while she wasn't looking. Oh, dear. Well, she does have a number of people in her life who a background to her support. But Faye, her foster mum, suggests that she sees a psychologist. 
she also suggested this 20 years ago when I think Faye said, well, that psychologist got her degree from a cereal from box. From a cereal box, yes. <laughs> but let's just have one last little bit of her and Maine reading from page 226. It sets it all in place. Of course there was Faye, bright, loving, animated, and Malcolm, warm, loyal, first smooth and darker than the night sky and darker than the thoughts that came and sent her to the bottom of her wardrobe, darker than Fergus Sullivan's temper. They weren't enough to pull her up from this. She was at the bottom of a well and no one knew she was there. And then one of the teachers took all her tea from her marked canister in the staff room. Lenny Meltdown. And her actions take her from bad to worse, with re-meeting her dog's vicious owners again, having a bag of marijuana and another envelope marked private and confidential coming to the school. There were so many oh no moments, such clever plotting and really good writing. And it's a debut novel. Well done, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. So, debut novel. I know I'm not surprised it was picked up by Penguin Random House, but how did you get it there? The nutshell version, because we're on a time limit, is that I this is the second book I've written, but it is my first book that's been published. The first one was a lot more bogged down in a police procedural detective style novel, which I did submit out there and I got many, 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 many many rejections for, as as a lot of authors know about um, when they've been submitting, um, doing that process. And then I wrote Lenny Marks at the start of our lockdown when I was on maternity leave with my son. Then I joined, uh, did a couple of courses, including a mentoring group with Lisa Ireland, who's an author in Victoria. And I'd also met her a couple of times as well. So I knew of Lisa and she's really supportive and she's also was a school teacher. So she's great. She had a read of a few of the start of Lenny Marks and said, I I'd love to give this to my editor, if you don't mind. And I couldn't have like emailed the entire manuscript to her fast enough. If you don't mind, I did not mind at all. And that's how it ended up getting into the hands of my editor at Penguin. So very lucky to have been in that position. And But you know, also did a bit of hard work to get it there. But what's funny about it is that same day that it got picked up by Penguin that they said, yeah, we'd love to take Lenny Marks on, I got a rejection from an agent. So I'd submitted it out at the same time to a little bat uh, of agents. So I also got a just a form rejection saying, yeah, thanks. Thanks for emailing us. No, thanks. The, the industry's so fickle. Like you just need to put it in the right hands of somebody that loves it. And I was really lucky to get it in my editor's hands. That's for sure. Oh, look, it was such a joy to read. It really was. And look, I, I loved all the anagrams. And we've got, I've got two more. Manipulator, Paramount, Animator, Alarm, Riot, Trap, and Revenge, Renege, Veneer, Venge, Even. <laughs> Lenny wants to ignore her past and continue teaching through the day and at night playing Scrabble with a pretend housemate, watching reruns of Friends and rearranging her 36 copies of The Hobbit. But her past catches up with her and her life starts to unravel. Karen Mayne has written a funny, tender story about a character you will come to care about. In Lenny Marks Gets Away With Murder, or does she? You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.